Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Harry. I'm Freddie. And I'm Rachel. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we have a full house to react to the Sue Gray report, which finally came out yesterday. Now, I should say we're recording before the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is due to announce a new package to help people through the cost of living crisis. We've had a few briefings about what that could include, but uh, we won't discuss that in detail because we don't know exactly what he's going to announce yet. So luckily for the government, (laughs) we're going to be focusing on what came out in the Sue Gray report. Now, obviously, we can sit here and analyse it to our heart's content, but what really matters is what Tory MPs are thinking of doing about it, if anything. Now, Harry and Freddie, I think you've been talking to a lot of MPs in the last couple of days. Where are they at? Yeah, I think the response was actually quite tepid because we didn't see many developments in the report. You've got to remember that there was an update that came out in January, which included the main conclusions from the report. So you've got the big judgments about the situation of the leadership in Downing Street already. And then yesterday, what we got is all the detail, all the bit by bit breakdown of what the events happened. So I don't think there was like a... a, you know, a sting or there wasn't a, a big point which MPs could latch onto and use to hold against the government. So I don't think you saw uh, a massive response. Having said that, we have had three MPs since then say that they uh, want Boris Johnson to go. So there is some movement, but I don't think we're seeing the avalanche that's unpredicted. Harry? So Labour shadow cabinet minister said to me last night on the terrace, what are the assembled mass of spineless Tories saying to you tonight? which is essentially the question you're asking. And I (laughs) just left poetically. Yeah, I think encouragingly for those who would like Johnson to go, there is some spine being shown by some MPs today and last night. I think what's really interesting is obviously we were in the Commons watching the debate and no one called for for Johnson to go. And and yet now we've had three people, Julian Sturdy, John Barron, David Simmons, all, all call for his removal. But it is a really strange coup that continues to take place because so often MPs are eschewing the opportunity to make a speech on the floor of the House, which I find crazy, if not insulting to parliamentary tradition. (laughs) (laughs) Why do we keep getting these WhatsApp messages and, you know, website releases and tweets about the fact that you're withdrawing your confidence? You're an MP. You have the the chamber. It's a great honour. Use it. And I think a lot of the time this would be a lot more powerful if MPs did make speeches in the House, because that would encourage others to do so. So, I don't know. I think tw- 12 hours ago, I would have said Johnson's safe. I think he probably still is safe, but it is but it is interesting to see that three MPs have, have, have done this, so maybe more will. And what do those particular MPs say about 
how the mood is changing. I mean, Julian Sturdy, for example, not sort of a known troublemaker. One MP put this to me last night. He said, up until now, MPs have had a good reason or an excuse not to come to a judgment. They could say to their constituents, to be honest, I want to see all the facts. I'm, I'm waiting for Sue Gray. Now they can't do that. So, I mean, of course, they could say, OK, we're waiting for the Privileges Committee, we're waiting for a by-election, whatever. But really, the Sue Gray was the main thing. So now they have to go to their local radio station, go to their local paper and say, or sort of explain themselves and why they think Boris Johnson should stay in power at the moment. So I think that's one part of it. But then also just speaking to what Harry just said, there's a lot of sort of resignation, uh, weary acceptance among MPs at the moment. I mean, just to look at some of the quotes I got from MPs yesterday, I'm just going to get on with my job. I'm fed up with it. I've got so much else on my mind. There's just there's just this <laughs> sense that they don't really want to engage with this issue. They'd rather let it be, let it go on. And um, the problem for, with that is the fact that I don't think the situation is going to improve much. The government have already taken a hit in the polls. You're not seeing a massive recovery. And if you leave Boris Johnson in there, you're almost guaranteeing that there are going to be further scandals down the line. Uh, I think it's actually harder to get to 54 letters than it is to get to 180 MPs voting him out. And I think a lot of the people that are being resigned when Freddie's haranguing them would <laughs> potentially be willing to vote against Johnson in a secret ballot on the floor of the House, as would lots of potential cabinet ministers and others who currently obviously can't put a letter in or don't want to. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind. It, it might seem, oh, it's so difficult to get to 54. How do you ever get to 180? But I think the game completely changes once a vote happens. Mm. And of course, the risk is that if they let him stagger on, it affects them all because it has affected the reputation of the party as a whole. It's not just Boris Johnson who's, whose ratings have gone down in recent months since these stories started to come out. And I find it interesting. I interviewed Jeremy Hunt, a potential leadership contender on the last episode, and he was sort of saying, I don't think that the next election is going to be fought on Partygate. It's going to be fought on sort of the economic crisis and the future of the NHS and how people interact with their public services. And I just thought, well, that's not going to be any good for... For the Conservative Party, especially not if it's still under Boris Johnson's leadership. And actually, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but there's a school of thought in, in the Labour leadership office that the best thing for them is Boris Johnson staggering on because he's got such um, a dented reputation that he's been tarnished. And actually, I think we should go back to sort of what was actually in the report. Rachel, what stood out for you? Oh, uh the Sue Gray official language, I think, the the very civil service terms of which she was talking about some some really quite dramatic events. I mean, obviously, people vomiting in the rooms at, at Downing Street. Uh, that was a big one. People spilling wine everywhere. It really sort of reminded me of some of my messier student days. That is the impression that we seem to get. Um, obviously, the point that stood out for me, and I think for a lot of people, was the revelation that security staff and cleaners, and at one point even a police officer, had observed the parties and tried to, to, to break them up. And basically, there seems to have been a very much, well, we are, we are the ruling political class and who are you to tell us what to do? Which really chimes with something that the the lawyer Adam Wagner said to me in an interview a few months ago. So he is the one who has been really mapping these regulations pretty much since day one and pointing out how they changed and when they changed. And at one point they were changing on average once a week. And he basically said that they were changing so rapidly with no scrutiny from MPs because they were just changing overnight that that kind of helped create a, a, a god complex and if you are the official 
official or the or the minister who overnight is saying this is now illegal or this is now legal, you do start to think of yourself as a special case. You are the ones making the rules. You are in a special bubble where where the, the rules don't necessarily apply to you because it's a war mentality. And if you are surrounded by other people who also have that mentality, you get this culture of, of rule breaking. So I can fully believe that the people who attended these parties probably didn't realise they were doing anything wrong because they were just so disconnected from the real world because of all this power that they had been granted with so little oversight. So a, a wider question for the future would be, okay, if we have a national emergency again, how do we stop that from happening? How do we enable a government to act quickly without removing all of those checks and balances? Uh, so, so this kind of thing can't happen. Now, that doesn't tell you very much about Boris Johnson's future or what the Tory party and, and, and Tory MPs will do. But I think it is worth considering what happens next time. Well, no, but I do think that is connected to Boris Johnson's future because although we have heard some of this reporting about the way security guards and cleaners were treated before, I think the Sun reported in January that one of these aides sort of leaving it in the early hours said, we're the only ones allowed to party to a security guard. They reported that in January and the Times reported in January as well that cleaners regularly were having to clean empty bottles off people's desks, empty drinks cups and things off people's desks the next morning after wine time Fridays. can we have um, wine time Fridays? <laughs> yeah. Can I we think start we that at the end? Can can now. Now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's start that. Yeah. So, you know, this stuff has already been reported, but it sounded like it was new in the report. This poor treatment, lack of respect mm. on multiple occasions. I think that was the new thing that came out. Boris Johnson seemed very keen to address it, actually, in, in his statement in the comments. He talked about it directly. Number 10 have made it known that he got up early this morning. Yeah. We were recording on a Thursday after the report came out to speak to the cleaning staff who were on duty in number 10 that day. The reason I think that they must be rattled by this is because we know this is something that cuts through from the Plebgate scandal, mm. remember, sort of of Gates past in 2012 when Andrew Mitchell actually had to resign as chief yeah. whip over what he did or didn't say to policemen when he was leaving Downing Street with his bike and was asked to use a different exit. So we know that this stuff sticks and... A lot of people will know security guards and cleaners who work through the pandemic. Those were some of the first people I actually spoke to during lockdown who were telling me how terrified they were because a lot of them weren't getting the sick pay that would have helped support them through self-isolation. A lot of them didn't have the protection that they needed to do their jobs. And so, you know, that really is a sort of sensitive spot in terms of who was impacted during the pandemic. And I just think that's that is a position of vulnerability. There is also the chance that more comes out from those people. So I spoke to someone who is a cabinet office staffer yesterday who said there's been a culture of bullying, harassment and sexism in number 10 for many years towards cleaners and custodians going back to Theresa May's premiership. So how many people have gone in and done those jobs and been treated disrespectfully, you know, more stuff could come out. So I think that's probably a potential danger. But yes, as you say, the report didn't necessarily expose enough new details that have moved MPs particularly today. But there's still questions to be answered, aren't there? So... Harry, I think you wrote about this. There was the gathering in the Downing Street flat, the so-called ABBA party that wasn't investigated further by Sue Gray because the Met Police had started their inquiry. And also there's questions about why Simon Case and Boris Johnson himself weren't fined at events where there are pictures where other people were. Yeah, so I don't know how much we're going to learn about those events now. But if you haven't picked up on this, there's a really important paragraph in the report where Gray says... I was investigating the party that happened the night that Cummings and Kane leave number 10 in, in the Downing Street flat. 
and five special advisors attended and Boris Johnson turned up at 8pm. And that looks like the makings of a party and, and, and certainly not really a work event. But Gray's very generous because once she describes that meeting as a meeting held to discuss the handling of Lee Kane's departure rather than to celebrate the downfall of, uh, of Dom. And <laughs> secondly, she said after the Met started to investigate that party, which they didn't really look like they've done, she decided it was not proportionate for her to, to look into it further. And it reminds me of what some said to me about Grey early on, which is that she's a fixer. And Boris Johnson welcomed this inquiry initially, and that's always important to remember. You know, He hoped it was going to exonerate him. The initial idea was that Sue Grey would, would not look where she should not. <laughs> and, and it is at times like that where it does seem like she, she maybe has held back. And one other thing to just point out is it, it does seem that Grey's language has cooled between the interim findings and the final findings. And I, I wrote yesterday saying, you know, the Met, it's, it's hard to say anything other than the Met saved or, or certainly aided Johnson here because that just took so much of the temperature out of this, both for Tory MPs and seemingly for Sue Gray, who has now grown weary of the whole thing. And 10 weeks later, wrote in more restrained language than she did mm. in her interim findings. We did actually report in late January that Boris and Carrie were, were brooding at checkers because they considered themselves have done nothing wrong and that's because they i was told thought number 10 was a household bubble and that does now seem to be the pm's defense essentially i was in a big place and we were one working household anyway so i think that there is probably some truth and that's how they conceived of the situation but it's hard to see where the justification for that was in the rules and also it's clear from this report that they some people who were involved in these parties knew that they were doing something wrong. Yeah, there's a there's a lovely line in there. Um, we're talking about lines that stood out where they were having an outdoor party, I think a garden party, but at the same time as one of the press conferences, the press conferences that I'm sure I mean, we've, we've all tried to have amnesia about that period <laughs> in our lives, but the press conferences that we were getting every night that were telling us very, very, very clearly, you know, don't go outside, don't meet people, stick to the rules, protect the NHS, save lives. And, and, and all of that and there's a sort of memo that says just so you know guys the press conference is happening at this time so you know try and be respectful and courteous and just keep, just keep the noise down will you um, and I think there's another text in there that says oh we, we seem to have got away with it so some people definitely were aware maybe not that they were doing something wrong but at the very least that the optics would be that they were doing something wrong and just to pick up on, on Harry's point from earlier about MPs not making speeches in, in the chamber I think that is something that could potentially turn the tide if you got somebody standing up and saying I'm withdrawing my, my confidence in the Prime Minister because of and then read out the most damning parts of it and talked about the security guards and the cleaning mm. staff mm -hmm. and, and maybe had a quote from a cleaner saying what she saw and how she felt treated or, or anything like that. I think that would be an incredibly catchy soundbite and a very powerful intervention that you don't get just from saying, yeah, I've, I've withdrawn my confidence. And I'm thinking about a few months ago, sort of David Davis doing his speech where he said, in the name in the, of God, go. In the name of God, go. There you go. That was an excellent impression <laughs> there, there, Freddie. But like those things can be really powerful. You, you are speaking on the national stage to the nation and there are certainly ways that MPs could make their interventions more powerful than they have done at the moment. Well, exactly. Look at Jeffrey Howe, his speech to take down Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. Imagine if he just sent that by WhatsApp. <laughs> this is, it's just, I find it extraordinary that they're not using this opportunity. And, and eventually, Tom Tugendhat was sort of floating the idea that he's given up on Johnson. Or just given up. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing, though. He, he did seem to finally be agitating to be leader on Andrew Marr's show a couple of days ago. And, and you wonder whether someone like him will, will try and make the opportunity to give a speech. Yeah, interesting. And... 
what was uh, the actual atmosphere in the Commons like when Boris was making his statement? I mean, what was the basis of his apology as well? Because it didn't sound like he was being particularly apologetic sort of 15 minutes later when he was mocking Sabir Starmer. Cool yeah, man. I mean, I think Sorry. the atmosphere changed quite quickly because most Tory MPs just left. There was no one on the benches. So there was Labour benches were full of people uh, trying to heckle and to stand up and uh, intervene. But minute by minute, Tory MPs would just leave. There was very few of them willing to stand up and defend the Prime Minister. But I think that there was one critical speech from Tobias Elwood, but that's not a surprise. He's uh, been critical of the Prime Minister for a while. Can, can I just Go say, El- Elwood is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Elwood initially withdraws confidence in the Prime Minister at the end yes. of an interview with Kay Burley on Sky News, in which he does it almost incidentally. And so then when he does finally speak, as Freddie's yeah. saying yesterday in the Commons, it has no impact because we already know. And he's marked as a usual suspect. Yeah. yeah. So, ha- Harry, have you considered an alternative <laughs> career giving personal brand and PR advice to Tory MPs who, who want to withdraw their confidence in the Prime Minister? Well, I'm sure they Rhetorical will listen services. to the New Statesman podcast. So I'm effectively doing it for free right now. <laughs> and if they're not, they should be. And they can send their invoices into podcasts <laughs> at newstatesman.co.uk. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said, on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. us. So our question today is from Adam. He asks, what would it actually take for Tory MPs to oust Boris Johnson? It's a really good question, actually, because 
I mean, we have been criticising them for their cowardice in the in the previous section, but really what they've got their eye on is their constituents and their seats. So what, what do you two think it would take? I mean, you've spoken to a number of Tory MPs about this. Well, I was thinking about this before we uh, came on and I made a quick list. I think one of the main problems at the moment is that there isn't a cabinet figure which MPs can corral around. There isn't that uh, figurehead for them to point to because you've got to remember as soon as you dispose a prime minister, you have to get a new one. You know, that's how our system works. You can't just get rid of one. You have to have someone ready to substitute them for. So first of all, I think Johnson's rivals within the cabinet need to re-establish themselves. I mean, Sunak obviously had such an awful week back in April, I think it was, and he's not yet recovered from that. So that's going to take a few months for that to happen. Related to that, I guess, is the fact that these rebellions, they require momentum. You need a sense of impetus, you need some excitement, you need peer pressure basically amongst MPs. And I think you're not going to get that key moment unless you get a cabinet resignation. So I think that'll be another key moment to look for. And then the third one I thought was important was you've got to look at the polls. I mean, Tory MPs, as as you said, are very self-interested and they are concerned about losing their seat to the next election. So if you get a consistent polling of around or below 30% for the Tories, I think that might start to get into their head and think, okay, we do actually have a fundamental problem here. Maybe it's the prime minister and maybe we need change. Yeah, so I just pick up. I, I don't. I don't want to be labelling them all as as cowards or or even as particularly self interested. I think they're they're doing what any set of MPs would be doing, which is they're working out what's going to be best for them, and that might be disappointing for the rest of us, but that's how people tend to act. So, but then you think, well, three in ten of you are currently set to lose your seats to the next election, so it may well be best for you to get rid of Boris Johnson. And I think the longer that remains the case or rather as long as that remains the case, the pressure will continue to exist. I think Freddie's right that 30% is psychologically a lot more unnerving than 35, which feels like it's only a short leap away from 38 and then maybe (laughs) Boris can survive in power at the next election. Yeah, I mean, that's giving me horrible flashbacks of the 35% strategy that uh, Ed Miliband had and spectacularly didn't work. Um, But yes, we've got an actual test for this, haven't we? We've got two by-elections coming up towards the end of June. Tiverton and Huntington in Devon and Wakefield as well. And these these will sort of be a test for the Conservatives on two levels. Can it still appeal to its rural voters, the so-called Blue Wall, although we've talked about how disparate the Blue Wall actually is with Ben Walker on previous episodes, and a sort of classic red wall seat where the Conservatives have a small majority and, you know, it will be a big failing for Labour if they can't win that back. You know, what, are, what will you be looking out for in the results, Rachel? Well, effectively, it's, it's it's what you said, because they're very different. And one of them is a red wall seat with a, a small conservative majority that should be quite winnable for... Labour. The other one is is Neil Parrish's seat, which has a, a huge Conservative majority, which uh, the Lib Dems are, are hoping to, to sort of parachute in. And the Lib Dems are a machine when it comes to turning up in, in by-elections and running on very local issues and kind of being a chameleon party, turning into whatever the locals are upset with the Tories about and, and um, opposing that, like we saw in Cheshire and Amersham. 
but they're they're very different. Obviously, that one is uh, going to be even harder for the Tories if Neil Parish himself runs as an independent, which he has threatened to do because he is quite popular there with with the farming community. So that could could split the vote. Both of these by elections are from a different scandal that we've barely touched on uh, in in this podcast or in in last week's, which is the Pestminster scandal and the fact that the Conservative government is increasingly haunted by revelations of of sexual misconduct. Uh, we have, which I'm sure we're not going to discuss, but we have a, another Conservative MP who has been arrested for rape and, and sexual assault charges. So these keep coming up and that's just chipping away at the government's credibility on another level. So I think just to go back to what Tory MPs are, are looking for, if they lose both of those, they can't keep the the, the red wall seats that they, they won in 2019, which was this, um, just if you cast your mind back, this seismic victory for Boris Johnson, who had just rewritten the electoral rules of the UK. I mean, that's a uh, that's a barometer for, for those. And they're also losing their base. That's going to be quite a worrying moment. If I were a mm. Tory MP anywhere, I'd be quite concerned. But then again, they could scrape through on, on one. And the issue with making such a big deal out of those two is if they manage to win one, that kind of almost looks like a win, even though it, it isn't. And to go back to the original question, what will it take for Conservative MPs to oust their leader? I saw a great tweet on this by Sam Friedman, which was like, oh, they're probably waiting for the final George R. R. Martin novel. That's, <laughs> that's when they'll move. And I, I, I do think the answer for some of them may well be never. Because we also have the Privileges Committee report as well. Is there any likelihood that that could possibly make MPs change their mind? I mean, if you do knowingly mislead the House and if he is found to have knowingly misled the House, you are supposed to resign. Yeah, and I think that sort of speaks to the situation that we're in. Normally, you wouldn't even have to say you're supposed to resign. It would just be the automatic thing that people do. And I think with the Privileges Committee, it's a long way off. I think the current estimates is about four months away. So again, we're seeing this whole saga drag on and on and on. It's never going to end. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that just helps Johnson as well. But I think one of the, the key things with the Privileges Committee is that it's quite a technical parliamentary committee and report, really. You, you, it's about whether he intentionally misled Parliament. And then you've got to remember that MPs vote on that report. So the committee comes to their judgment they put it into the House and the House votes on it. So even when the report comes to light, that's not a definitive thing. There's always something else. There's always another vote. There's always uh, another whipping operation that can come into play. So I don't think that's going to play a massive role and definitely not as big a role as Sue Gray has played up until now. And by that point, there may well be another by-election. Yeah. Yeah. And another by-election in the Southwest, potentially. Yeah. And then just on that, I think that, I think the by-elections are very interesting. It's almost like a microcosm for the next general election. You've got the yeah. Tories being threatened in the north, but then you've also got the resurgence of the Lib Dems in the south. And the Tories have to fight on two fronts in that case. And that makes it very different, both in terms of resources, but also in terms of their messaging. You have to play to both types of voters, multiple types of voters. And that might be tricky going forward. I think the Privileges Committee could maybe even be a moment where an MP uses the floor of the House to withdraw their confidence (laughs) in Boris Johnson. But no, in all seriousness, the by-elections next month are going to be fascinating because on our current prediction on Britain Predicts, the new statesman, the Tories are going to lose 112 seats. 94 would be lost to Labour, 12 to the Lib Dems, 6 to the SNP. So Wakefield is that archetypal seat, as as others have said, among the 94. And and then the, the Tiverton seat is beyond the dozen that they'd be expected to lose. But again, shows you the, the challenge there. So as, as Freddie says, it's a microcosm. And I think if he loses both of those by-elections... 
then you know more WhatsApps maybe <laughs> on on the way, and maybe even a speech. <laughs> exactly. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Rachel Cunliffe, Freddie Hayward, and Harry Lambert. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and leave us a nice review, and don't forget to subscribe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.